Did you see what happened in Miami with the Jeff Koons sculpture? A woman shattered a $42,000 Jeff Koons balloon dog sculpture during an art fair in Miami. <laughs> yeah, which, I mean, let's, let's talk about how problematic the whole situation was. Because first of all, it was on a either glass or acrylic plinth in a very crowded place. And it was not very high up. So it was either breast implant level <laughs> high or it was BBL level it was high. somewhere in that range. Yeah. So there's been a lot of speculation because Miami's, you know, plump full, no, no pun intended, of fresh hot BBLs and rock hard breast implants <sighs> that, you know, the damage was done by one of the two. Either that or a big fat Louis Vuitton bag, just boom. Well, it was one of those things, most likely. Uh, I think the investigators will figure this out. This crime, because this is a crime after all. To add insult to injury, of course, um, Adam Lindemann is selling off his collection or large portion of his collection to Christie's right now. And I've seen their very dramatic commercials on Instagram that they like to post of them like uncrating all of their works and then they have like the cameras that spin around or whatever and the first one was like a pig like you know the one like a boy with a pig and, like, yeah, yeah and they're like taking it out and it's like classical music you're supposed to be like oh oh my god oh. anyway whatever but then it was so funny because like Four hours later, there was another commercial, and it was literally for the small balloon dog. <laughs> it <one> was <laughs> the same one that got destroyed at Miami Wynwood. So, I mean, what are we really crying for? <laughs> but did you know this is actually not the only artwork that was uh, destroyed accidentally that week? Did you actually hear the other stories that happened? No. Oh, my God. You didn't hear? Well, no. I'll, 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 you want to hear some of them? Of course. Yeah, yeah. So at a, a retrospective of Andy Warhol piss paintings, uh, guests actually took one off the canvas and re-pissed on it. Well, he freshened it up then. Right. So there's actually more, though, because uh, the Lee Bontecu, do you know that? Of course. Yeah. The, the scary vagina. So there was an art handler that was moving two of them and accidentally put the two voids, the black holes, together. Uh-huh. And actually transported his art handling team to an alternative dimension. So that was kind of unfortunate. Um, well, we don't know where they are. It could be a very nice place full of vaginas. Yeah, someone was driving the Damien Hirst shark formaldehyde piece uh -huh. across country, and it actually fell off a bridge and landed in the water. The shark reanimated and then attacked the leg of a surfer and bit it off. So Well, bless that shark. He's been he's been detained for a long time. He needed that. Oh man, yeah. And then in London there was a David Hockney show of the iPad drawings. Huh? And someone just accidentally deleted all of them off the cloud. So now they don't exist anymore. Oh uh, no, yeah. poor David. This one was really weird. A, a construction site, a crane actually grabbed a Richard Serra uh -huh. sculpture and then took it and then used it for a child's uh, jungle gym setup. So there's some happy kids at the park today. Yeah, they're probably going to get a staph infection from all that rust. Welcome back to Art Smack. 
This is Jerry Gagosian here with Matthew Picasso, and we're on episode 15. Sorry we missed you last week. We were in Los Angeles running around like rats chasing a piece of cheese, trying to cover every single event possible, which we'll go over with you this week. And then we came back and we had to jump straight back into reality. I sent out my newsletter that um, premium subscribers would have gotten today and VIP subscribers got earlier this week. And we've just sort of been a little bit on the busy side, which is why, unfortunately, we had to skip a week of the podcast. But nonetheless, if you missed out on the week, we are here to cover everything. And we're also going to be going over the auctions that are up and coming. Sounds like a good episode, a full one. So welcome back. Yeah. It's auction season again, Jerry. This time the auction world turns its attention towards London, England for the... You must be speaking in the Queen's English when you announce this. It is the, I guess you could say this is the contemporary or the post-war or... The better way to phrase it actually is it's the time where they sell works of art from the 20th and the 21st century. I think they call it the contemporary now sale. There's a bunch of phrases they use. Some say 20th, 21st century. Now we're calling it the pump and dump sale. This is the pump and dump sale, folks. There's a very interesting article that came through Artnet News by Katia Kazakina. Who we think is an amazing writer. She's doing the truth teller. She's an investigative journalist in the art market. Probably need a lot more of those. And the title of Katya's article, which I think sums up this topic, is last year's art stars make way for even younger, cheaper debutantes in London's auctions as voracious speculators seek blood. So Katya starts the article with a couple rhetorical questions. She says, where is Jade? Where is Anna? Where is Christina? Of course, referring to Jade Fatu Jatimi, Anna Wyant, and Christina Quarles. She goes on to talk about how last year's auctions, this contemporary segment, was filled with names like the ones I just read. But it seems like London this year, we're seeing a whole new crop of young artists that are being sold by the auction houses. Um, she talks about how there's a noticeable drop-off in the offerings of Black portraiture, She's calling bro primitivism. Have you ever heard this phrase before? Bro primitivism. No, but intuitively, I know exactly what it means. Yeah. Um, she's seeing a drop off in that area. A drop off of the number of paintings that are being listed for auctions is lots in the sale. <laughs> so, bro primitivism is artists like Jordi Kerwick, Robert Nava. Um, and what another topic that she says is missing is Spanish New Wave. Um, only offer one Nicholas Party painting this season. Nicholas Party has been a staple for all the auction houses for a long time now. Um, David Galprin, who's Sotheby's head of contemporary art for the Americas, uh, he's a he's a big shot over there. Uh, he said that quote: "There's a voracious and enduring appetite among collectors. They are constantly seeking out new names. The auctions have become a place where a lot of collectors are introduced to new artists for the first time, and we tailor our sales meticulously." to try to really paint a picture of what are the most interesting works being made today. So Katya got a quote from an auction executive, an anonymous one, of course, because I don't think anyone would actually put their name to this statement. But this auction executive said, 
quote, there's a huge pack of speculators. It's all pump and dump. And then they're on to the next thing. And auction houses just reflect what artists are being actively sought after. So that's the name of the game, folks. <laughs> it's, it's not about patronage, stewardship, capturing zeitgeist, truly of what matters in art, but rather what the market mm -hmm. appetite is. And also she for. says here, that's so important. Tastes change fast in the investment-driven art market. I mean, they're just opening the kimono and they're no longer even obfuscated with any type of flowery language. It's just straight up <laughs> a crypto token exchange or something. Yeah. Like just going. I, um, I took a look at last year's Christie's and Sotheby's sales in London. Yeah. And did an apples to apples to the Christie's and Sotheby's sales of London this year, just to try to see some of the names that have carried over and some of the new entrants. There's not a lot of carryover. There's really not in these sales. You have names. I was there last year. That was oh, the yeah. that was the first in person. I know that you're a saved auction person, but I went with Josh Bear took me, and it was the first time I ever went to a live auction and like watched it happen last what year. What did you think generally? Well, I was very excited because as of it was right after COVID and I think they're still going to continue to do it. It's set up like a TV show set, like a game show. And like there's cameras moving all around the room, like all of the auctioneers are like covered in jewels and like their hair is done, their makeup's done. It's really a show. Like it's such a show and like the art handlers come out in their uniforms with their white gloves and like unlift the veil or even sometimes like a door would turn and another mm -hmm. painting would show. I would say there has always been a, a element of theater to the auctions, um, but COVID really changed the game because Probably pre-COVID, the majority of bidding was done on the phone, which is when you see those people on the sides on the phone and they're talking to the auctioneer. Or actually in the room, people sitting there with paddles, raising their hands. Um, obviously, COVID shifted people's travel schedules and desire to be in situations like that. So the auction houses did a lot of investments in the visuals of these events, setting it up. I mean, the first ones during COVID when they were having it, there was no audience. So they had a lot more flexibility about cameras. I remember one time they tried to do like sports style commentators. Mm -hmm. So some senior auction people would have a headset and they'd be like talking to the audience about what's happening. Just like someone would be really? calling, calling a baseball or a basketball game. Like and coming cool. up next, we got the Anna Wine painting and it's going to be uh, you know, Anna, her historical record. She's represented and they would do stuff like you that. You know, I would love that. But I thought it was great. Yeah. It was, it was a little bit more interesting than simply some awkward silences in between an auctioneer doing the bids. But when you're in person, it's not awkward. No, it's, it, it's maybe more awkward when you're just watching it online. But when you're sitting there in the audience and I, because it wasn't full yet because of like COVID mm -hmm. and stuff, um, I didn't have to like stand in the press box, which actually the press box is very interesting. You mean like the sky boxes up top? No, they have press boxes on the side. Oh yeah. Um, and that is where the, the people who really know what's going on are standing. So I'm standing there with like Josh and like all these like old, 
like OG reporters who know like, oh yeah, that person, they bid on behalf of that person. They're buying that lot up and they're going to buy every single so that's lot. That's like an art advisor bidding on behalf of. Yeah. And so I was like getting like, I was like galaxy greening, like <laughs> learning so much, like sitting with them. And I loved like that. And then I like got a little overwhelmed because like they just knew too much. And it's so funny because when you read like the bare facts or something, this is not commercial for bare facts, but like he really does know like who stuff gets sold to right? because it's his job to know that kind of stuff. So like I got a little overwhelmed and then I went, I sat at one of the seats where they have like the paddles and stuff. And of course I didn't raise it or anything, but there's people just like bringing you champagne oh, and, yeah, and like, and like, you know, you could just like put your hand up if you want to. And like, it's just, it's fun. The energy's fun. Not that I'm pro auction house, but in terms of like a sport, like, I don't know. I've never been to the Kentucky Derby. Uh, I've watched pro basketball in my life, but for me, like watching an auction house. That's your sport. It's uh, my sport. Like, I like it. Like, uh, it's so fun. And I love when you do, and the audience always loves when you do live, when you go Instagram live <laughs> during the auction and you're like cheering on the specialist. And it's so funny. You mentioned the auction, or you actually mentioned the specialist dressed up and everybody's yeah. theatrical. And like, yeah, that was a decision made that they would give, for example, jewels from an upcoming auction. They would market them by putting them on the women that were bidding. Dripping in jewels. And all the cameras would grab them. It would be a great advertisement. I, I think in summary, auction houses actually did a great job of switching the visuals and the production quality of auctions. So that now it's actually a decent watch on YouTube or because mm -hmm. by the way, these are available on the websites for the companies, but also they do live YouTube streams for something quick on your phone, whatever. It's pretty great. But going back to just the differences yes. between last year and this year's auctions, there are some names that carried over like there's oh, Julian Wen, Shar Hughes, Caroline Walker. Besides that, it's a lot of new names, honestly. Um, so Christie's is starting off the auction. And I think the audience might know if they don't, just a reminder. Position in an auction matters. Let's say there's 50 lots. The first few lots, they are curated to drive a lot of interest. They're not mm -hmm. just randomly put together in order. They're called the flyer. Yeah, they're trying to get a crazy cool result. Like the estimate will be forty to sixty thousand dollars, but the sale price will end up being five hundred or a million. What's the what's the flyer images or like what are the first five for this sale? Yeah, so Christie's is starting off with Michaela Yearwood Dan. Okay. And then they're going to Christina Banban. Mm -hmm. Sotheby's is starting off with Mohammed Sami mm -hmm. and Guglielmo Castelli. Um, it, these artists did not appear last year. You know, this is a new breed, like Katia is mentioning. Right. And it goes on from there. I mean, some of the stars with the Christie's sale, um, there's a Claire Tabouret. Yeah, I, lo I love yeah, her paintings, though. <laughs> um, I, I see, I'm, Claire's been around for a while. And actually, when I was in, when I was in um, Paris at the, Bourse de Commerce, they had probably had mm, maybe 15 of her works and they're beautiful. They're, they're wonderful paintings. Yeah, they are. 
like this one that I'm looking at here in the article, like I would happily live with. Um, I think she's been painting for a long time. Now, Michaela, on the other hand, Michaela Yearwood, Yearwood Dan. Dan, I personally like as any any dealer that cares about her beyond just being like a money making machine for them in the short term. I would be very concerned and I don't think they're handling her career very responsibly because she literally not last our Basel, the Basel before I, you know, you and I were together. Um, I went first to Zurich art week and then I went to art Basel and she was showing at, she was like in a two person show at Maria Bernheim. Okay in Zurich. And I knew like there was some buzz because there was a, another like major collector I knew who like had one of her works and I knew an art advisor that wanted one of her works but said like oh I can't get it cuz it's really hot right now. But it's like if you look at her age, which what was she born 1990 or something like that, she's very young. 94. 94. Like, it's it's way too soon for her work to be going to auction like this. And leading off a sale. Yeah. There's a lot of attention, and it's going to do well. And I know, like, I've had some arguments with art world specialists who disagree with me on this, and they're like, auctions have never hurt an artist or their career. But I'm sorry, that's bullshit, because... Usually, once an artist's work starts getting dumped at auction, especially somebody like Michaela, who I don't know who represents her formally. According to her Instagram, it is uh, Marion Boski in New York. That's the New York gallery. Okay. Well, once once that signal, like once that flare gun gets shot in the air, that's a signal to the collectors that bought her earlier that it's time to start yeah, dumping it's go time. it. It's go time. You have a you have a comparable. You have a you have yeah. a market price that you can now say, okay, oh, I have one of that size, or I have a better one. Yeah, and then and how are they going to match those primary prices to to those crazy secondary prices? That they're, they're probably not going to be able to, especially yeah. a gallery. No offense, like Marion Boski, who has what one gallery and does how many art fairs a year like that's not a good position for a brand new baby artist to be in this is very irresponsible the most responsible thing that could happen in this situation would be for marion to buy the painting at auction herself which by the way happens a lot it does um that is a technique that gallery owners have utilized in the past to help control the market i've also seen some <laughs> in, re in a related but more nefarious scheme, they actually bid to increase the price of the work, right? With no intention of actually buying it, and they'll pull out at a strategic. What is the estimate for the work? The Michaela Yearwood Dan. The estimate is forty thousand to sixty thousand. And we know it's going to go above that for sure. It, I, I would say I, it would be. I'd be surprised if it didn't hit two hundred. I would say three hundred. Right. I'm thinking that's that's right. kind of the pop that you typically see with works that are leading off an evening sale. Again, yeah. like that is a prestigious position. This isn't the day sale or the afternoon. This is like 
the cameras are on and everyone's attention in the art yeah. world. And you know what? For all, you know, for all it's worth, um, I have been wrong many times. And for, for the sake of her as an artist, I hope that I am wrong. I wish her nothing but the best in this situation, truly. Like, I've seen her paintings. They're pretty. They're flowers. They're, they're like abstract flowers, and she writes little bits of poem in them. Like, they're nice. They are, they are pretty beautiful. It's, maybe we talked about it uh, on our live pod, which we'll cover, and then also in the past. We've said that like abstract seems to be... Well, it's like abstract and figurations. It's like figuration hiding in abstraction right. because people aren't fully ready to let go. Um, Transition. Yeah. Transitory, like that, that style. Exactly. And like I said, I wish, I wish her the best. I wish all these artists the best. I went through that list. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, I, a lot of people that are in that sale, personally, I have worked with. Louis Fertino, for example. Haley Joseph's like I, I mean I could go through the list and I love each and every one of those artists. Henry Gunderson has a shoe shoe painting. Uh, oh, maybe that's Phillips that, that that that's coming up in. But it's like you know I'm seeing a lot of artists that I care about coming up for auction, and um, it's. It is interesting because when you're the young, when you're the young hot one, you feel invincible and you feel like you really are the one that struck the iron and that you, that you figured something out that no one else has been able to, to figure out. And the art world will flatter you that way and make you feel and believe like that believe that that is the truth but the unfortunate thing is especially in the market the art market that we're existing in right now we're living in a world where because we have so many artists coming out of mfa programs plus all the like hustlers who just are artists because they say they're artists etc cetera, etc cetera, like there's so there's so many artists people can attach themselves to that label attach whatever price make whatever kind of alliances they want to make with whichever dealers and all of a sudden they're they've got these astronomical prices they've got people buying all this work in on this ponzi scheme and everybody knows in 3 to 6 auction cycles cycles these paintings are going to get dumped. And like the thing is, is where does an artist go from there? Because it's different when you're young. I'm, I sound so old. It's different when you're young and you're beautiful and you think you've hit on something and like Vogue wants to cover you and um, ID wants to cover you and, you know, like, you're you're in art forum. I don't know if art forum exists anymore, but you're you're in art net. You're in all these things and whatever. What happens when you're like middle age, and like 
you're still kind of doing the same thing you've always been doing because that's where you struck the gold. Mm -hmm. And like no one really cares that much and you can't sell that same kind of painting for $300,000. Your, your, your market crashes. Right. And it's very hard to come back from that. I think there is anyone who tells you that there's no correlation between an auction result and what the gallery will sell the work for at primary subsequently is, is not being genuine, I think. They definitely are keeping an eye on that. And I think a strong auction result will force a gallery's hand to reassess the price at least. Now, I think responsible stewards of an artist's career at the gallery level will never directly chase a price. So for example, an artist was selling the works for forty to $50,000 at a gallery, an auction result comes in, it's 500000 They won't, in the next exhibition, price the work at $500,000, but they might bump that 40 number to 80 or to 100 or something like that and try to track with the auction market and capture some more value as you know the artist's career progresses and there's that interest. But the ones that get in trouble are the ones that are chasing really fast. And that is the classic crash and burn. It's, we've seen it over and over again, not just with artist markets, but any type of uh, craze, whether it's crypto, whether it's freaking tulips, like there's a reason why price stability matters. And ultimately I think leads to an artist who has not just a five to seven year career, but a 50 to 70 year career, right? Well, okay. So one thing that maybe we can push back on that um that actually you and i have never really discussed on this podcast um is you know as much as auction houses sort of have positioned themselves as being like so important to uh art world monitoring and what's going on there's also a high probability that there may be the reason we're not seeing Jade, Anna, Christina, these artists that, you know, were super hot a, a few months ago is because perhaps the artists got or the, the dealers got really fed up with what happened in the last auction cycle, pulled in control and made anyone and everyone that has bought one sign like five-year non-resale clauses. Yeah. And maybe you won't see one of those for the next couple of years at auction. And that might just be fine. I think you and I can share this with the audience. It is, I think, industry standard now for a gallery when they sell you a work at an art fair or at the show to make you sign a clause in the sales contract that states some form of a non-resale in a period of time. So we've seen, can't sell the work for three years, can't sell the work for five years. You can sell the work whenever, but you have to come to us first and we get to choose whether we want to sell it on your behalf or not. We've seen things like resale royalties written into sales contracts. Um, all these things are meant to emphasize a level of control of the artist market and you, be hard pressed to find, I think, a gallery that shows at places like Art Basel or Freeze that doesn't have these clauses in their contract, even for paintings 
that are $5,000, $7,000, which in relative terms is a pretty low price for those, those galleries, particularly for artists that are really hot. They are, they are locking you up mm-hmm. in some capacity. Um, to play like a small devil's advocate and just to put a little bit of doubt into Katya's thesis and what we've been talking about, because I think in all fairness, we need to say, it is possible that artists like Jade, Quarles, Wyant will be back in the auction spotlight in New York in May. Mm-hmm. So Sotheby's and Christie's started off as London companies and the London art market was the first real developed art market. That said, New York is now king. And it's possible, I'm just speculating, that the specialists and the executives at both auction houses said, okay, let's do the new up and coming artists as almost like a test or something in London. And then let's save these hot ones that we think we can still get you know, great prices for, for May in New York. Mm-hmm. That is possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to put that out there. So we talked about Michaela leading off Christie's. Um, Sotheby's is leading off with someone named Mohammed Sami. Mm-hmm. Katya calls an auction newbie. <laughs> uh, he was born in Iraq and an art advisor was quoted in the article saying that Sami's paintings are quote impossible to get in primary. It's a perfect scenario to stage a multi-phone bidding war and set the mood for the evening auction. So they're being very transparent about this, which I think, honestly, I'd rather them be this way than than try to dress things up in flowery language. Like, this is what they're doing. These are businesses that want to have a lot of attention and have press written about them and achieve great results because it'll signal to future collectors, hey, look at us. Look what Sotheby's did for this artist. You have a similar work or a similar artist in the style of, we can get you a good price for it. Um, You know, it's... It, it remains to be seen. We obviously can't predict the future about what will happen to these artists when they when they hit this 10x, 20x prices for their artworks in such a short period of time. But the show does continue to go on. I mean, this is what auction houses have done for the last few decades, and I think will continue to do. Yeah, and also, just last thought on this: um, when I look at like Nicholas Party, Christina Corals. And uh, Anna, for example, you have to think about like who these people are represented by. And especially galleries, especially Hauser. I just know because I know so many people at Hauser like very well, actually. Um, like not to, not to make it sound too mafioso, but like they do not fuck around with their artists and with their artists secondary market. They don't. And like, if this kind of stuff starts happening, they'll be the first ones to tamp it down. I mean, legally lawsuits, stuff like that. Legally. Yes. But also, I mean, like they will, they will buy it. They will do whatever it takes to make sure that they have control. Because they actually have this like statement uh, that is like a mantra. <laughs> when I first heard it, it scared me and made me laugh a lot. Um, but I think it even says something on their website like this. But it says something. They say they have this mantra that's like, "We represent our artists from life even uh, until death." And then afterwards. <laughs> yeah, and so they have like this extreme like 
uh, protectionism when it comes to their artists. So, I mean, we'll see what happens, but like when a Christina Quarles, who was just in the Venice Biennale, like her work, whether you love it or hate it, doesn't matter. It matters to Hauser and Worth and it matters to their collectors. They're not going to let this like become some like speculators game. Yeah. I'll say that, you know, from last year's sales in London, here are some names that were there uh, that are no longer in this upcoming sale. So it's artists like Derek Forjor, Quarles, who we've talked about, Louis Hollowell, Jordi Couric, Jules de la Balancourt, Nina Chanel Abney, Jade, Izzy Wood, Laura Owen, Lauren Quinn. Um, those are big names for sure. And I'm sure they'll will be back in the auction cycle at a certain point. But mm -hmm. in this chapter, they you know paved the way for Christina Banban, Michaela, Mohammed Sami, um, Claire, Tyler Hobbs, Michael Armitage, Emma Webster, Spencer Lewis, Lou Fertino, and many more that you know they may have popped up in auction in the past, but now they're doing you know evening sales in London. So it's a different level. So we'll see what happens to these artists. We'll keep an eye on it. Maybe in a few weeks when the sales are over, we'll do we'll come back and we'll just do an analysis and see what happened and see the crazy results and chat about them. Yeah. All right, now for the big dance. Topic everyone wants to hear about. Jerry, how was your LA Art Week experience in a nutshell? Um, I was freezing. It was very cold. <laughs> we we freezed at freeze. We freeze at freeze. Yeah. I, I, we did not dress appropriately. No. The 40 and high 30s and maybe kiss of 50s every year. Yeah, with like hours. the wind shear, what they, whatever they call that. It was like in the tents. Unbelievable. It was so cold. That aside, we saw a lot of people. No, 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 wait. I don't want to move past that. <laughs> okay. Because listen, we're on, the, we're on the Northeast right now. And I'm going to be honest with you guys. I know I have a great voice for podcasting. But you guys haven't seen what I have been wearing for the past three, <laughs> three months. I live in like some sort of pajama, double pajamas and, and thick socks all the time. The only true. time I get dressed is to go to the gym. And I still wear like some form of double pajamas over that till I get to the gym. So like I was very much looking forward to going to an art fair in Los Angeles, my former home state, and like looking cute in like some nice outfits. And the only fucking thing that I packed was like one like ratty beige sweater, okay? Because I thought, oh, just in case, you know, like maybe I'll need this. I was so cold. I lost so many points in the fashion world. Like, I, I just want to say this before we get there. Like, when we actually walked into the tent of, like, the main event of Freeze, all of a sudden, all I, I just see this wave of, like, beautiful, the beautiful people dressed in all the beautiful clothes with perfectly smooth hair and the nice makeup, and the nice this, and the nice that. And I looked like a rained on, then dried out tumbleweed that accidentally 
blew through security and was dragging around through the booths of the fair. I looked horrible. She didn't look that bad. So I put sunglasses on so nobody <laughs> would recognize me. It, I was cold. So we can move on from that. But like, it was not a fashion opportunity no, this last not. week. So we got in on Tuesday of last week. We landed kind of late afternoon, checked into the hotel. We stayed at the Petit Hermitage. Which is amazing. West Hollywood. So shout out to those guys. We had an incredible stay there for the week. You know what I like about that place? What? Well, first of all, it's just charming. Like everything about it is Really charming. well designed, I'd say. Yeah. Um, it's full of real art. Yeah. Like not, okay, maybe it's not like uh, art fair art that like costs millions of dollars, but like every single piece of art, and there is a lot, is real art. Yep. And it's whoever picks it out doesn't have bad yes, taste. The owner, developer, founder is a collector, and he, he really does collect. And it's not, he's not going to auction or he's not going to Art Basel, but he's buying real works of regional art things in Europe that he saw, like he populated the space with really interesting objects. It was, it was probably the most tasteful and the best I've seen from like the hotel's perspective, yeah. which is usually like prints and reproductions of Monet's or whatever. It was, it was good. It was so nice. And then they had like on the roof, they had like a swimming pool full of like amazing heat lamps and like fire pit things. And I really love that you could smoke cigarettes on top of the roof. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Like, just let people do that. L.A., California. Like, let just them blast and say. Just, just be a little more European. You know, it's illegal to smoke cigarettes in Beverly Hills. It is illegal. Like, I don't know if you go to jail, but you definitely get a fine. <laughs> like, for cigarettes. Okay, I know smoking is bad. I'm not advocating for smoking, but like. I just long for a little bit of European-ish-ness. So, like, I went upstairs every morning, and I was like, cappuccino, please. And I would sit there under the heat lamp, and I would enjoy a nice cigarette. And it was very, it was, it was very reminiscent of my early 20s living in Europe, where still to this day, they let you smoke everywhere. It was a fun stay, and shout out to the Petit Hermitage again. So we got there on Tuesday, we set our bags down, we checked in, and then we were off. Yeah. There was no art to see at that night. But of course, one of the main reasons why people go to art fairs is for the social scene and the parties. So our first stop in that evening, I think it was our first and only stop because we were so tired from the plane, was we went to uh, Annie Armstrong of Artnets. She's the column writer of their wet paint column. Mm -hmm. We went to her party, the wet paint party. Mm -hmm. And it was a blast. We saw a bunch of people. Um, Annie did this fun pamphlet thing, which was it's like the most eligible bachelors of the art world. Yeah. And she had images and bios. Zines, like and, what's your sign? Like, what do you do for fun? Yeah. There was a couple of people I knew that were in it. It was pretty great. It was, if you weren't with me, you probably would have been <laughs> in it too. Um, so we woke up on Wednesday and we, I fucked up because I didn't think that we could go to one of the art fairs, uh, Felix, yet because I thought the opening was the next day. Um, so we ended up going to Spring Break, Spring Break Art Fair. Yes. We are alumni of the Spring Break Art Fair. We were curators last year in LA. Slash an artist. Slash an artist, Jerry Gagosian exhibiting. Um, we shot over to Culver City. Shout out to Amber and Andrew, the 
owners and operators of the Spring Break Art Fair. They do it twice a year. And we went in there. It was a pretty quiet afternoon, but saw some fun stuff. Um, mm -hmm. One booth really stood out to you. Um, yeah. They, they, they decided to like start giving an award. Actually, it was Carl DeWoody's idea. He like made this giant, like, um, like, what do you get when you win? Like a trophy? Yeah. He, 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 he like made like a four foot trophy uh, for whoever the winner would be. But my, my choice did not get chosen. We walked in, we looked at a couple booths and then immediately I saw this booth that I loved. Mind you, personally, I really don't want to own these paintings, but I think that I really think they could be like museum quality or like they like I think that it feels like museums have lost their like edge, like there's no humor anymore and there's no like criticality in in a lot of like what museums acquire they're just like this is pretty and hauser and worth told me to buy this they're donating it to me i'm gonna take it but like this series of paintings for me were like that this belongs in a museum they were uh, a series of a suite it was a suite of paintings um, of Mark Zuckerberg painted in the style of uh, propaganda Maoist style paintings. So it was like Mark Zuckerberg, like with little children, <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg walking like with like women and other business people like pointing up at the sky everyone's, smiling, everyone's, everyone's like psychotically smiling like and the paintings were like very well done but very very well done but oddly done in that sort of flat propaganda almost posterized I think way the, the term is social realism yes came out of communism particularly yes you, you said mao it's definitely in the maoist style of art it was like north korea like kim jong-un yeah father oh my god they're so good they're and so good, so, yeah. so precisely accurate for the moment like i said i don't want like hell no would i want to live with one of those things <laughs> but like that isn't a that is an important like suite of paintings that need to go in like be a part of contemporary history they were great it was just, we our smiles on our faces lit up and it's like you know it didn't take too many peeling back the onion layers to figure out the message behind this but still something that on the nose was was good it was yeah just, it was really tasteful and i really enjoyed it so shout out to david howe um right across from david howe's booth was something that i blew my mind so walking by walked into a booth that Stylistically, look like old Hollywood. Oh yeah, they had posters of old movies from probably like a beautiful bureau that was bureau. like glass. Really cool. It was like a room from the night. I think she had like perfume sprayed in there. Yeah, it was just like it was Kay Tompkins Projects, who's a gallerist who does a lot of spring break uh, programming. Um, and then on the back wall, as soon as you look in, there was a portrait of a woman. And been to a lot of spring breaks at this point. 
that work was not anything like any spring break work I had ever seen. Um, it stood out and for a good reason. And I walked up to it and I, I couldn't take my eyes off it. It was a real Alice Neal painting. <laughs> portrait, yeah. Uh, yeah. Do we know who the portrait was of? I, I do not. I will say that spring break, for those who don't know, prices for the artworks are anywhere from like, could be a few hundred bucks could be a hundred bucks up to like maybe a 20,000 would be sort of at the, on really the high, high end. This Alice Neal work was not available to be purchased online like all the other works because it was probably priced in the millions of dollars range, maybe two to three million dollars for this painting at spring break. And I guess Kay Tompkins had, uh, was what's the phrase? She had it consigned from some collector and was but like oh my god the security for that yeah. oh gives me so much anxiety I mean, it's a, she probably took it home every night <laughs> like it was it was pretty wild to see um you know we kept going shout out to claire Foussard. yeah amazing collection of uh inuit art from canada northern canada i mean i don't want to use the phrase but i will some eskimos that are up there but these are um, local artists there based in, in northern Canada. So there's beautiful sculptures and works on paper that in a style of that you would never see before because they are they're not trained in art schools down here in the States. They are they are so local and beautiful and personal to them and surreal in a way. And the sculptures are phenomenal. They tell the story of their lives up there from catching fish to craftsmanship like blacksmith or other types of like manual work. And it's these beautiful rock sculptures and and, and the and the paintings and the drawings and drawings and um well two things about that one thing that I thought was interesting is that there was this one like scroll painting and I was like and it was a giant octopus oh, yeah. that was like overtaking their village yeah and I was like Claire like tell me about this so interesting. And she was like, yeah, um, so like obviously they've had a, a lot of trouble up there because they have a lot of natural resources and they live off the land. Like they use like every, like they use every part of the animal. Like they're very like in tune with their nature, but there's a lot of like oil up there and there's a lot of things that people want. And it's not just, the evil Americans, even though there are the evil Americans. She's like, they've also had a lot of attacks from Japan. She's like, but because of that, she's like, there has been this like influence of like Japanese comics on an anime, yeah. anime on what they perceive uh, art and drawing to be. So like these Japanese like octopi <laughs> uh, uh, like overtaking their villages was like such an amazing like artwork I thought. Spring break was super fun a great way to wet our beak for the art viewing experiences we were to have. Mm -hmm. uh, then we moved on to the Wednesday night which of course goes back to the social events and over to a good friend of yours, Lauren Toshin. And Be Lauren and Benedict. Benedict Toshin of Toshin Books. You guys yes. probably have seen one uh, out and about. So we took an Uber up to their home. I, and Which is a spaceship. It's literally structured as a spaceship. I mean, it's unbelievable. We From got, the 1950s. We got or to the 40s. foot of the house um, and we had to take an elevator outdoors up 
kind of like a mountain. Yeah. It's crickety. It was safe, but it was like a little, little scat. I felt safe. It was pretty safe. It was us. Ellie Ryans was in there from 56 Henry, and we were just climbing up this tower. And you get up there, and like, God, it's some some shit out of the Jetsons. I mean, it's just futuristic. So beautiful. Open windows around. It's circular. And it was warm. <laughs> I would say that. It was very warm. There was lots of good food. Oh, my God. Yeah. There was um, two, like, I have oh, you to. You fangirled so hard. Okay, you gotta yeah. got to tell the story. I got to tell the story. So, okay. I, I graduated from. No, no, no. This is before I even went to art school. For Before I went to SFAI, I went to art, an anarchist art school in Norway for two years called Srikjarna. And this is when I discovered the work of Miranda July. Who, Miranda July. Who a lot of people, I think, know of, but maybe I'm just really old. I actually didn't. I actually didn't know who it was. Okay. So. She's made a ton of films. She's made, like, she made... She made one recently. Um, she's also married to like a pretty big filmmaker herself. Um, she um, it just has this. First of all, she has not aged <laughs> in like twenty years. It yeah. was her birthday party. She was wearing like a like you know like a band like the girl that spins the baton like band marching outfit was like red lace and like fluffy lace like puffy yeah. sleeves like she looks so cute with her curly afro and just her miranda Jelinas. i just i i read her books i like she was i would say you beelined i couldn't help it yeah when we first arrived you're like oh my god hold on that one second tossed me to the side yeah and ran up on but i window. also know that i alienated myself because I could not help it. <laughs> because I, I just love Miranda July so much and her work so much. And I, she has like a really dark sense of humor, but she pulls it off with a certain level of lightness. And I know that like when I was very early on, like baby, baby, baby artists, you know how like writers when they say they want to be a writer, they write in all of their heroes' voices until they finally find their own voice. Well, I think a lot of artists do that. And sure. I know that for me, Miranda July's like voice was sort of echoed in some of the things I did early on. That's how much I really like you loved did. her. So I I I I lost my cool. I like introduced myself. I was like, I read everything you've ever done. I've watched all your movies. Like, I'm from the Bay Area too. Like, I I was like, isn't that like an LA no go though? When you're out and about. Yeah, she, I mean, I didn't. I don't know if she's like that famous. Where she'd be weird. We're also at a very small family like house party, but like, I probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Anyways, she thought I was weird, so she cut that conversation sort of short. Then um, the other person I met finally, because I've been, I have been in a very weird texting friendship with um, Vanessa Beecroft for like over two years. Like, so who's Vanessa Beecroft for people who don't know? Vanessa Beecroft is 
a very multidisciplinary artist in the sense that she makes sculptures and she makes photographs, but she's also been the creative director for so much of Kanye West and Kim Kardashian's brands, shows, his opera, everything. Like she has, de- she has designed like their costumes, their looks, the way they stand, like everything. Over the years, right? Over like, the years, like yeah. she's, she's, she's a visionary. Right. Like I, I always. I, I don't like get mad about it, but I kind of roll my eyes when people are like, oh, Kanye West, like he's such, he's so genius. Like, look what he did. And I'm like, yeah, Vanessa Beecroft did mm. that, you know? So, but Vanessa and I, we got put in touch during the pandemic and obviously we couldn't really meet back then. But ever since then, we've always been texting like, are we going to meet up? Oh, I'm in LA. Oh, I'm in Milan. Oh, I'm out in Wyoming with Kanye right now. I can't. I'm here. I'm there. So we never actually met. So when I finally saw she was at Lauren's, I also just like went up to her. I'm like, I'm Hildy. And I grabbed her and gave her like a very hard hug. And I think because she was Italian, maybe she could just deal with it a little bit better. She kind of like made a joke like, okay, okay, I understand you love me. You know, like whatever. Um, so I made a fool out of myself, but it's okay. Lauren and, um, Benedict were amazing hosts. It was like a very cozy, I would say. Um, but it felt for a moment because as, as you guys know, I mean, I kind of approach the art world like a blood sport. Um, but that night in particular, I really felt like everyone put their swords down and these moments i feel are rare especially in la or maybe it's only la that these things can happen where like everyone was just like together like no one was like oh i met Jeannie greenberg that night finally we've just been dming for years like finally met her like everyone was just like hanging out like eating chocolate cake like it was Oh, the chocolate cake was so good. Yeah. Yeah. But it was just like a very, very, very nice night. And like, how often do I say that? I hate parties. Very, very rare. I don't like parties. And this was like nice. So the next morning on Thursday, that was the big dance. That was Freeze Art Fair. (laughs) Big dance. Big dance. The whole reason that we went out to LA, kind of, sort of. Here's the first thing about Freeze that I didn't expect was how shitty of a commute and a logistical nightmare it really was. What was I saying the whole time? You had talked in our previous podcast about the move to Santa Monica for this fair would be problematic. And we might as well call you Jerry Nostradamus because you nailed it. But like, I was not saying that to be a drama queen for the sake of being a drama queen. I was speaking out of literal experience that that Barker Hanger is a nightmare for anybody to get to. And it has been for years. So we went out there and our Uber driver gave up a mile and a half away from the venue because of the traffic and the lane closures. There's all these lanes just randomly closed. So we ended up hopping out and walking over to there. Uh, 
We kind of were confused about where the entrance was. We ended up going into the first building that looked inviting. It had the lines of ropes and it, you could see the entrance to, to a space was there. So we got in and it really felt like the equivalent of these events when it's like day four in the afternoon and the excitement's gone. And it was very calm, serene. We're walking around, you can still see the back of the house folks and the food and beverage stuff, like still getting set up and moving boxes around. And it was like, what's going on here? We didn't really understand. But we put our heads down and we started to walk through the booths. We would then come to find that that was not the main part of the fair. That was sort of the annex, the spillover, where a bunch of big galleries were, but it wasn't where like the main energy was. We kind of did things, I think, in reverse order of other visitors. Mm -hmm. I think people make a beeline towards the main fair with the hundreds of booths. We kind of started off in the more emerging space. It was where, um, or do they call it focus, or that's what Rapazzo calls it. But it was basically like smaller galleries, just a smaller space. Um, and we went through the exhibitions and the booths there. Yeah, it was, um, it was kind of funny because when I've gone to an art fair out there, it is historically only ever in that building. So that building was the Barker, the Barker Hangar. Hangar. Right. So I thought we were in the right place. So Matt kept asking me, like, you think we're in the right place? And I'm like, I think so, you know? But I, was, but I, I kept whispering to him, like, this is the saddest freeze I've ever seen. <laughs> because, like, the light, because there's, like, the hangar light from like the old airport airplane, which is this weird kind of yellow old school lighting that is just like not good for lighting. And then the booths had like literal clip-on like Home Depot style lights. And it was just, it just just didn't feel very like love. And it made me feel sort of bad for the younger emerging artists and dealers who probably spent a lot of money because it's expensive. Whatever they paid, given the tier that they're at, that's expensive for them to be there. And so I felt for them that yeah. like they, that's the shaft that they got like to be out there and they were covered. They were wearing like thick jackets. Oh, it's cold. Yeah. And like weren't getting up because it was so cold and like there was no one around. We did see some cool works. Uh, there was some Korean galleries that oh, we've been saying this for a little bit, but it needs to be reiterated. The Korean galleries are bringing heat. Mm -hmm. Every fair that we're seeing galleries based in Seoul, uh, Busan, these, these galleries are so well curated and thoughtful with the works they're bringing. Um, shout out particularly to there was a Lee Bay paintings, these black wood oh. style works that just just took, rocked my world. Honestly, I sent them for minutes, but just into the void. It was really really striking. So the Korean galleries are just doing an amazing job at these booths. They just they don't take it for granted. The last point about I guess we'd call this the Barker Hangar Annex Freeze Fair was a very funny interaction that. Jerry and I witnessed in a gallery called Nicholas Bagruin, who's a San Francisco-based dealer, really big dealer, mainly focused on secondary sales mm -hmm. of 
blue chip 20th century artists, mm-hmm. like the abstract expressionists, uh, 20th century avant-garde French artists, Matisse's, Picasso's, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, we got a chance to walk into the booth and a couple paintings caught our eyes and Jerry became captured by a Helen Frankenthaler. And I'll let her take the story from here because she witnessed something that <laughs> shouldn't be a surprise, but nonetheless was surprising. Yeah, so I'm very intently and lovingly staring at this painting, wishing that I could buy it myself. And um, For $4 million. Right. And uh, this woman walks into the booth. She's, she, I will say she's dressed like me, a.k.a. She's probably freezing. She's definitely not in formal, no, showy clothes. No. She's pretty she's, low-key. She's wearing jeans. Stylish, but low-key. I wouldn't even say yeah. jeans, jeans, a, like a thick jacket, mm-hmm. um, no makeup, blonde hair and a ponytail, middle-aged, you know, maybe, or I'm middle-aged. She was alone, I think, right? She was alone. Right. Uh, but she knew her shit about art. So she walked up and she said, went to the lady sitting at the desk. She said, excuse me, um, how much is that? Lee Krasner hanging over there. And the lady like kind of looks over but doesn't really look up and she barks some price. I'm going to just make up one now because I can't remember, but it was somewhere like 4.1. Right. She just doesn't need, she doesn't even like look at the person. And she goes, oh, okay, great, wonderful. Um, And that lovely grouping of Matisse cutouts. I'm assuming they're they're sold together as a group. Um, they're beautiful. They're so well preserved. Um, what are you selling that for? And again, this woman just can't be bothered to look up from her fucking iPad. And she again just says some price. And then this very, I mean, I thought this was the most like classy thing a person could do in this situation was she kind of crouched down, not in a mean or aggressive way, and said, you know, I thought I really ought to introduce myself to you because I think that I've done business with your gallery before. My name is Olivia Walton. And Olivia Walton, as in of the Walmart family. (laughs) who has one of the biggest American art collections in the world at, in the middle of nowhere in a big museum that's for free for people to go see. And it was so funny to see this salesperson fall out of their chair, basically. It was like a wind-up toy soldier. And like all of a sudden, like eager to sell, eager to say anything about anything. Oh, my God, painting. let me help you. Oh, my God, yeah, yeah, yeah. come on, come check it out. Like, and on it a was, dime turn it was it was really gross i mean it was really just yuck yeah to me not what you want to see not, not what i wanted not to good see. behavior no but pretty entertaining to witness very entertaining i thought olivia was so classy the way right. she handled it because she could have been like you know what fuck you she like liked the work and she wanted to stick around also she doesn't need to go to these fairs she could send proxies she could send whoever she wants she went in person and she was polite. 
and they were so dismissive, which I think is indicative of how people in this art world are conditioned to behave. Um, I mean, judge the, they judge the book by its cover immediately. I mean, they definitely judge my book, and they're like, no, no, no. They didn't even move pinky when we walked in. No, <laughs> they like, they're like that tumbleweed. That tumbleweed's <laughs> got to go. So at that point, we had basically seen all from the kind of annex Barker hangar space, and it was time to go. We asked someone, hey, how do we get to the, the main dance, the big show? So actually, we walked outside, and we saw a golf cart pull up. They're like, you can walk, but like we have free transportation. Go outside, and you'll see it. The dude in a golf cart. They're like, it's like a half a mile away. I was like, no, 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 I'm not walking anymore. He pulls out. We hopped on the back. We were joined by a bunch of people. I think some people climbed and just like hung on to the back just so they could make it with their friends. And then we got over to uh, the main art fair for Freeze. And it was food and, and tables and all sorts of marketing stuff on the outside and a ramp that led up to this. What I imagine was a space for the airport but had been completely transformed to really, I thought, look exactly like how I've seen freezes in the past. You know what I mean? Like it had the same aesthetic and style. It was like they were, they were wholesaling like a retail store into this space. It did feel like that way. Mm -hmm. It flowed that way too. It was kind of centralized and then branched out left and right. And then there were more corridors you can go down. I don't believe there was any stairs, right? Everything was on one floor for that space. Yeah. Um, and we got into freeze, and then we realized, okay, yeah, this is why the other space was empty because this place was bumping, packed, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. buzzing. Like as soon as we walked in, Tyler, the creator, rapper, walks by with a huge Louis Vuitton square trunk and just is like charging and sprinting through. And I was like, okay, yeah, we're at freeze. This is this is the freeze that we know in the door. So Jerry, obviously, you wrote the big report uh, available on Gagosian.com, which the audience can go and subscribe and get your real deeper insights into how the freeze art fair went, but what can you tell us about your experience? Um, well, like we've been saying, abstraction is back big. Yeah. Um, I've kind of heard and known that this was happening for like the last year, year and a half, like the rumblings have, have started and, um, you can even see with, some of the auction results or auction results sorry with, with what's coming up for auction like people are moving away from uh literal figurative painting and what people who don't want to completely let let go of are moving into is more of like a surrealist mm -hmm. type of painting so if you are a good figurative painter, but you don't want to like fully let go of that type of painting yet, you're starting to see a lot of surrealism, um, which I don't mind. I ne like neo surrealism. Yeah, neo surrealism. Yeah. Um, and then there's the other thing, which is you know, abstraction, pure abstraction, um, which. I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it. Cause I saw a lot of like bad abstraction um but then i also saw a lot of abstracted imagery if right. that makes any sense hybrid yes so the painting that everybody wanted and talked about the bell of the ball that i really did not like 
was the painting by Duran Langberg. And it, from a distance, looked like an abstract painting. And then when you get close, you realize that it's uh, two men having anal sex. Yep. <laughs> and full on. Full on. Enos in butthole. Um, and I mean, I don't mind uh, gay imagery in art. Actually, collect a little bit of that. Um, so has nothing to do with that. What I don't like is his use of color. Um, it's way too like squeezed straight out of the tube onto the canvas for me. Um, but Victoria Moreau had an entire solo booth just of this guy's paintings. And this is what everybody was clamoring. We for. had an, an art advisor, someone in the dance run up to us and right at the beginning. And we asked like, what's, what's happening and pointed straight pointed at right. that. Like that was the one that everyone had been talking about and buzzing about. And I think Artnet right that morning had done a big profile about him gee i wonder yeah i wonder the work of Dron langberg so yeah there was clearly i think you could, if you could say that there's one takeaway one winner from from the fair i would think it would be him and his work so yeah but i i did make a list um of sort of the the new untouchables the new untouchables. Yeah. Defi can you define what that means for the audience? So it's um, the the new artists that you can't buy. Nothing's available. Nothing is available by these artists. So Emma McIntyre, have you heard of her? Nope. She has a solo show right now at Chateau Chateau. I actually really like her work. It's pretty good. It, it's pretty good. It's very good. Um, it is completely abstract. Mm -hmm. um, but I, what I like about it is she manages to make what from far away looks like very small, delicate brush strokes. When you get up close, you realize they're, they're massive. Mm -hmm. So they look delicate from far away, but they're huge canvases. So they're, they're pretty interesting. And then um, I'm going to mess up this name. Aaron. Garber Makovska, <laughs> who's a just pure abstract painter represented by Blum and Poe. Um, Lauren Quinn, can't touch that. L'Oreal Beltran, can't touch that. <laughs> Zio Ziegler, who is just straight up a Picasso derivative, but is you know very sought after right now in the moment can't get that lucy bull can't can't get that i the first time i saw lucy's work was um in switzerland dave kordansky had a full booth of her work on the second floor of course um i think this was a year ago um, I'd never, ever, ever heard of her. It was just like the, all these yellow sort of frenetic, um, paintings. Um, 
and I was like, whoa, this is very different from, this is a departure from all the figurative stuff that everyone else has been showing. And now Lucy is just like an untouchable. <laughs> um, Jade, who we talked about earlier, who is not at auction. However, her work was at Freeze and you, you can't buy one. Like, yeah. I don't know who you have to be to get one. She's very gozy in now. She, yeah. Yeah. You just, it, her, her work wasn't in that booth, but uh, I think she still has relationships with her um, British gallery. And I think that they brought one. Right. Um, and I also can't stand those paintings. I think they're terrible. I hate the use of color. That's just my opinion. People love them. Um, a Brazilian artist that you can't get your hands on right now, uh, Marina Perez Samoa. Sim messing that up. Sorry. Um, also, like, incredibly popular at the moment. Um, has a lot coming up this next year. That name is going to be very yeah, well sure. known. Um, and again, I mean, the, the funny thing is, is that whole, like my kid could do that. And whenever abstract painting comes into vogue, I feel like I become that Karen. He's like, <laughs> and I don't even have kids. I'm like, my cat could do that. But I look at a lot of, not, not a Lauren Quinn, but you know, like some of these paintings, I'm like, oof. These are profoundly simple ass paintings that they're selling for a lot of money. So they must so be good. They must be good because they're expensive. Um, Deron Langberg, he's going to have a run for a while. Who knows how long? Victoria Moreau's got her uh, grips in him. So, you know, he passed the test. He sold, had a sellout booth, which means we'll be seeing him in all likelihood this year or next having a solo well, show. Let's, before we go on, let's, let's double click on that because you use the term sellout. And I think based on the feeling and the conversations we had at the fair is that many people sold out. Like more so than Art Basel Miami at a faster pace before the fair had even opened up. You heard, classic cliche is when you talk to people like directors or gallery assistants, they're like, yeah, you know, we already did the work. I just have to sit here for the next four days. Yeah, smile, somebody literally people. said that to Yeah, us. I mean, that's, that's the feeling because the work had already been done. And I, I felt like, although many booths at Art Basel sold out, there was definitely some more teeth pulling from gallery directors towards the collector community. Like, mm -hmm. hey, we're trying to get this work moved. It's day three. We haven't sold one of the main works. There was definitely some more trepidation from the market to piling. Where I feel like at Freeze, and maybe this is a key takeaway, is that the market is humming. You could feel it energetically from just walking around, but also the smiles and the, the demeanors of the gallery workers and owners was very, very up. Yeah, but also if you think about it, the price point and Freeze's Freeze, Freeze is still a tear down from Art Basel price wise. It just is. It, it's sec it's second to Art Basel. And LA always gets excited because LA has a chip on its shoulder that it is not as good as New York. And 
Um, I think the fact that LA gets to have a major global art fair in its city gets it excited, period. And the fact that these paintings, though many of them are incredibly expensive to people like you or I, are still priced at a point that is somewhat accessible. Um, whereas there were many things at Art Basel when we were asking, doing our little like investigative research, where people were like, yeah, we can't move anything over a million dollars. I didn't see a lot of things that were priced over a million dollars at Freeze. Mm. We used to say that's at Christie's that the work's priced to sell, like that it, 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 the price was intentionally placed in a position where you could generate some real interest from multiple buyers. Right. Which seems to be the strategy there. And you use the phrase the, in your report, which I'll spoil really quickly, is that supply is equaling demand in this environment where it seems like before supply was there, but the demand hadn't met it, but now there seems to be more of an equilibrium being founded mm -hmm. uh, in the art market, which is a good thing. I don't mm -hmm. think we should say that that's a bad thing. Um, it, it's healthy uh, for the ecosystem, for prices to match really what the demand is. And um, yeah. And I just wanted to say like, uh, from everything I heard about Freeze London, which I did not attend, it was not a success, mm. but that was, you know, right when everything was, you know, crashing over there and everything. So I think that Freeze really needed a win this year. And so I don't know how they talk to their galleries about this when they do planning. Um, but I think that there was sort of a message that was communicated across all the different channels that like you need to bring things that are going to sell. <laughs> it was like the strong arming of, yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't get too creative this time yeah, around. This like, has to let's sell. Make it, let's make it a success. So yeah, freeze. We had a great time. We stood there for a few hours. We getting out of there, just like getting in there was an absolute nightmare. We waited an hour for an Uber. <laughs> we probably had some social events lined up for that evening, but you and I decided to take a pause. We had a hellish. We were tent. over it. It was like three, four o'clock, and we ordered a disgusting amount of of, of takaya food, Mexican food, and cupcakes. Yeah, and we just watched the Jonah Hill, Eddie Murphy, you people movie on Netflix, and just pass out. And like that was our night. It Literally asleep by six o'clock. It was great. Jerry and I did a live episode of Art Smack uh -huh. at the Petite Hermitage rooftop. So that yeah. lovely rooftop that Jerry was talking about before. We got to set up uh, a small little stage and we had guests come. And I'm sure if you guys are subscribers, you probably heard in your email or saw in your email uh, the invite for it. We had a blast. We did a few hours on a bunch of topics. We played a great fun game to kick it off. We brought back the game of the week. Uh -huh. um, and I just want to give a real big shout out to the Petit Herbitage for hosting that. For everyone that turned up, that came, it was such a good spirit. And it actually was the one day where the weather turned out to be good. It was uh -huh. sunny. It was like in the low 60s and everyone was just having a great time on that rooftop. So it was a blast. Did you enjoy doing it? I mean, it was our first live podcast we ever did. Yeah, it was so much fun. Unfortunately, it was so windy yeah, no. that our mics did not pick up the recording. Which is partially why an episode wasn't dropped last week. That was the intention, but the audio became a problem. It was the wind. It was outdoors. What can we do? But, um, you know, I think... 
we would love to do more live stuff like that and yeah. invite you guys to come out because it's just a different energy. It's so much more fun when there's a big audience. We were engaging with the audience, asking them questions. We obviously did a Q&A at the end for a while and we got the news. Because let's face it, right now it's just me, Matt, and our two cats in our bedroom <laughs> with our mics talking like crazy people about art. We, we use the time to talk about our experiences at the fairs the days before, to talk about LA, which we've done on this podcast previously about where it's headed, the changes that it's undergoing in the current time and you know what the future would look like. So it was definitely a blast and uh, we'd love to do more live podcasts. Yes. For sure. Saturday, the next morning was our last day in town and we spent it at Felix. Felix Art Fair. Which was so much fun. Last. We met my friend who's a curator out in San Francisco, Sarah McKay. So shout out to Sarah if she's listening. Um, and we just did the casual. We had, the great thing is, is that it, it wasn't the opening of Felix. Mm -hmm. It was at that time it had been like day three. So all the dealers were properly so hungover and <laughs> stoned and just had like a relatively good uh, attitude and demeanor because like the pressure of that like day one, day right. two to sell was over. And now everyone was just like chilling, floating on those like swans in the pool. Like well, for the audience, tell them the, I guess the aesthetic and the, the structural difference of Felix versus an art fair like Freeze or like Art Basel. Oh, sure. So Felix is really fun. Felix was started by Dean Valentine and the Moran brothers. Al and Mills Moran. Yeah. yeah. And they, the Moran brothers run a gallery in LA and Dean's a big collector. And I think that everybody was just like, oh, we need like an LA, something that feels very LA because Freeze is like a London company, right? And we need to have like our own fair that feels very LA. And the Roosevelt Hotel is massive and is pretty much as iconic as it could be and still hold as many people as possible. You couldn't have it at Chateau Marmont or Sunset Towers because those hotels are just not big enough. But, um, you know, the Roosevelt is, first of all, it's so beautiful. Like, I don't know what year it was built in, but it was literally built for when President Roosevelt would come and visit. Like, that's where he would stay. It's, it's absolutely stunning. Um, the architecture is amazing. It's huge. It actually has enough space in its ballroom and in its, like, dining areas to hold like tons of visitors i've been there before like pre like probably like 10 years ago when like lindsey lohan and samantha ronson were were dating and like went Queens. to one went to one of their dj nights and danced like you know it's like a really fun just iconic place in la but anyways they have all of these big cabana rooms that go around this giant pool that David Hockney actually designed. And um, they em the dealers like empty out the furniture. Right. And they turn them into like little mini art galleries for like four days or something. And 
you and then there's two floors above i think they do the seventh and the eighth floor and you just walk you just you can either go walk around the pool or you can walk through the inner corridor and just weave your way in and out it's like going it's in a hotel hallway just bopping into different rooms yeah it was but really it's fun. very like elegant because totally. the hotel has this like old hollywood vibe yeah yeah and the indoor outdoor thing was really fun as you would weave through and in the middle there's like like jerry said there's the pool and people are just going about their business hanging out oh and let me tell you like okay first of all i don't drink anymore but in felix's of felix past like this is like an art selling opportunity, but it is also a time for people in the art world to get together and get fucked up. <laughs> and like in the old days, like we would just go like room to room and we knew all the dealers. It was like shots of mezcal, shots of tequila. And like it was fun. Like that's what you did. Like you went and, the, and everyone would just like party around the pool. You can stay late. You can go swimming late. Like it was a lot of fun it was like that that really is the vibe and i think people still do that actually um and then there's like the bar but the funny thing about felix is like they <laughs> the roosevelt hotel is so big that like they certainly do not stop their business for freeze or sorry for felix they're not like oh we're gonna like close down so like it's also a big tourist like not I wouldn't call it a tourist trap, but it's like a big tourist hotel. So like you will see like bachelor parties of like bros from like. Did we see a woman in a wedding? A wedding dress. We saw a woman in yeah. a wedding dress. <laughs> like like la last year, two years ago, I saw this lady. Oh my god, she. First of all, she pulled up in like a bright yellow. Um, convertible mustang with like the longest bejeweled fake nails i've ever seen her skin looked like a leather handbag her blonde wig was on crooked she almost fell out of the car she was so wasted they had to help her out she was wearing like not like those those clear stripper shoes with a thong bikini and she was they were like can, can we help you ma'am and she's like i'm a guest here my grandbabies are gonna be showing up here any minute just tell them i'm at the bar and i mean this like and i was right behind her and i was trying to park my car and of course like i am crazy magnet and this lady comes straight up to me and she looks at me and she goes, you, you're a good person. <laughs> I'm buying her drinks all day. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, get away from me. But like, I love that like Felix, it's just so LA. So like everybody's in the pool, everybody's just there. And you see a lot of art and you see a lot of young emerging art. And then you see like, you know, very established art. So like major galleries will also get the cabanas. It's not just like, oh, little baby, whatever galleries. It's major, major galleries. 
And then there's like the smaller ones too. Yeah. And people a lot of from LA out local of town. galleries like to do it too, I would say. Yeah. yeah. I think one artist that stood out in one exhibition, you walked into the room and you, I can tell when this happens, I can see it. You just, you were entranced. You saw it, it stopped you in your tracks. You again, Miranda July style, beelined it over to oh the person at the desk and you just kept asking questions. And it was a painting, it was a triptych by an artist named Ireland Wisdom, great uh -huh. name by the way. And it was this depiction of these women in the nude playing classical instruments yes. all together in this form. And you went crazy. I mean, what was it about that painting that you loved so much? Well, it turned out that she had just come back from studying for like four years in Rome, traditional like Renaissance painting. And like the style in which she was like, depicting the human body was so incredible and every single woman that was like in the band like playing an instrument had like a different shape and like a different color skin like just yeah. every it was like all these different kinds of women and i like loved it i just thought it was so beautiful and so fun and you could tell that like she said, like, these are my friends and they really are in this like band together. And like, I just asked them if they'd get naked and play and they did. And I loved it. I thought yeah. it was so wonderful. It's like you said, she, the artist happened to just be in there that day. Yeah. Talk with her. Her dad was there. Her dad is like this old punk rock guy. Yeah. Like punk rock from like the seventies. Yeah. He's got that style. And we talked to her for such a long time about her practice, about her work, about that piece in particular, her time. I think she was in Florence or was it Rome? It was one of the two. Yeah. She had spent time in Italy. Some uh, Korean collector bought it. Yeah, we were like, who I bought was like, it? Fuck. So some Korean collector had come in and grabbed the painting. It was a really special one. So shout out to Ireland Wisdom if you want to follow her on Instagram. And then another painting that more than stood out to me, that called to me that it was like a siren song, you know, I could not help myself. It was in uh, Nicodeme Gallery's Cabana was this painting called Performance by this Chinese artist named Jianin. I'm sorry, I'm saying that wrong. Who? H-O-U. Um, and it's just this preposterously beautiful painting that looks it's like a abstracted painting of like a pile of reflective surfaces that almost looks like jewels mm -hmm. um one actually does sort of look like a string of pearls but the rest could be i don't know a pile of christmas ornaments it could be shiny garbage it doesn't matter it's just this it's reminiscent almost of like um like a dutch uh still life how they would sort of place these objects together and then like and they're not alive and then like imbue like life and joy and happiness and and what's the word i'm searching for like the joie de vivre just by like putting a bunch of these objects together. And that is literally what this painting sort of trans 
transferred to me or gave to me just by looking at it. Like yeah. I, I got so happy looking at this work. And then I went on his Instagram and I was like, oh shit, I like this one. I like this one. I like this one. I like this one. And uh, so I had to buy it. Oh. <laughs> but it was, you know, I don't buy, I probably buy a painting once, twice a month, twice a year. Maybe, yeah. So it, it really grabbed her. I mean, you were... I mean, I I had to have it. it right. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Yeah. So um, check out his work on Instagram. Jananhu, J I A N A N H O U. Well, well, let's link their Instagrams. For yeah. So they just get a little bit of visibility from everybody. Cause yeah. It's affordable. It's so. just so. It, it it's exquisite. His work is exquisitely beautiful, and he's a, he actually has a solo show. He's he lives in China, but he's coming here. He has a solo show coming up in New York, so you also be able to see it then too. And Nicodem, right? Yeah, right. So we'll link we'll link the artist that we mentioned in this uh, podcast in, in the bio in the description of the episode. But overall, after that, after we left Felix and we had a great time there, it was a nice way to cap off our trip. And we took a red eye home that night, flew back to the East Coast. So. What would you say in summary? How would you describe our time at LA Freeze? Okay. Art Week? Before I knew you, uh -huh. when I would go to art fairs, I felt like a little lost lamb <laughs> because I would get so overwhelmed. And being being with you, you're very good at time management <laughs> because, like. I'll, I, I would be the weird person who would get stuck in a corner listening to somebody talk about like, like, I don't know, the theories of the gray people who come to visit Earth for like three hours when all I want to do is go and look at art. And you're just very good at like politely being like, we've got to keep going. Like, mm -hmm. so I think Art Basel, Miami and L.A. Freeze for me personally, we're both total wins because we went and we got to see everything we wanted to see, saw some amazing friends. I, I didn't have that old, old Hildy or old Jerry anxiety about art fairs like I used to get because we came, we saw, we had a good time. Everything was sort of proportioned correctly. And then we left. And we left. It was a great time. So we went through a lot of what we saw at Freeze, but we kind of scratched the surface. So if you want a more detailed and specific report of, you know, names, places, and times, uh, the best way to get that is through the Jerry Report, which just came out. So if you'd like to read that, you hop over to gagosian.com. You sign up for either a premium membership or a VIP membership. And either one will describe what you get with that. And um, you will be able to uh, learn more about the experience. And I got to say, guys, I'm reading all of Jerry's reports. This is by far my, my favorite one. <laughs> I think she did an incredible job capturing what's happening, giving insight and telling you kind of where things are going and really taking a snapshot of what this art fair really meant in the context of the art market. 
It's so good. So please, if you're going to subscribe, now's the time. This is a must-read report. Like she said, the podcast, we went over a bunch of stuff with Freeze LA, but we left out a whole host of insights that you can only get on the report. Yeah, what he said. <laughs> Anyways, um, we'll have more for you next week. We're going to do some auction stuff probably in the next few weeks. I'm sure, Jerry, you're going to go live during maybe some, some Oh, yes, stuff. we are. So that should be fun. So look out for that. And we have a couple guests coming up, some surprise guests. So stay tuned for that. All right, everybody. This has been Art Smack, episode 15. Like and uh, review us on Spotify or iTunes, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you later. See you on the internet. Thank you.